Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the history of fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Welcome to the show, Dressed listeners. April, when I say 1960s fashion, what first comes to mind? Well, basically the first thing that comes to mind is sex, drugs, and a rock and roll, baby. <laughs> Yes, the 60s is this incredible period of experimentation and upheaval of established social orders across the board. So many exciting changes were happening in the ways of art and music and fashion, of course, made all the more revelatory and important when viewed through the lens of the overarching changes in society that were then also taking place. So the 60s is, of course, the period of the Vietnam War and the American Civil Rights Movement. The 60s was a time when people, and young people especially, stood up and demanded change to the standards that had dictated society for centuries. And this especially applied to fashion casts because young women were sick of dressing like their mothers. Oh, yes, they were, April. So enter Youthquake, the 1960s fashion revolution. Which I happen to know, Cass, happens to be the name of the exhibition that you and Tracy Jenkins co-curated at the museum at FIT, Back in 2012. Indeed, it was. And research for this episode actually sent me back down memory lane to a time when Tracy and I were immersed in all things 1960s. And let me tell you, this was an incredibly exciting time. The premise of the show is actually we explored this dramatic impact that youth culture had on fashion during the 60s. And perhaps no other designer had as much of a long-standing influence than that of Mary Quant which is exactly why Quant is the current subject of a retrospective exhibition at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. And we are thrilled to have the exhibition's curator, Jenny Lister, here with us today. Jenny, welcome to the show. Jenny, welcome to the show today. It is such a pleasure to have you with us here. Thank you very much for asking me. It's great. Yeah, I would really love to start today with hearing a little bit more about your fascinating work as a curator at the Victoria and Albert Museum. So, I mean, I'm really lucky. I've been working here for nearly 16 years as a curator, mostly on the 19th century collections. So corsets, crinolines, muslin dresses. It's such a fascinating period um, with textiles as well as fashion. And then I also have developed a kind of sideline with 1960s fashion. It just emerged out of a smaller exhibition I did a while ago and it just seemed like it was such an underexplored area. So I've been working on that which has led to the exhibition about Mary Quant that we're talking about today. Yeah and it is impossible to talk about 1960s fashion without talking about Mary Quant. I mean she's the most iconic fashion designer and brand from this period 
and the star of the VNA's current exhibition, Mary Quant, running until February 16th, 2020. So dress listeners, you have a while to get out there and go see it. So Jenny, can you tell us more about Mary Quant's formative years? When was she born? Where is she from? What it was like growing up during World War II, for instance? Yeah, of course, I'd love to. So she was born in 1930. So she's 89 years old this year. And obviously, she was young during the wartime years. So when war broke out in 1939, she moved out of London. Her parents were actually Welsh, um, or they'd grown up in Wales. And they'd grown up in kind of quite deprived areas. Their parents um, were teachers. So they were kind of able to um, make progress through society through education. So they they did very well. Her parents did really well at university. I think that's where they met in Cardiff. And then they moved to London. And um, they kind of instilled in Mary and her brother Tony a really strong work ethic. They really felt that both their children should earn a living. And Mary was always told that she would end up being a teacher too. But I guess this experience of war, growing up during the war was a big influence on her. So her parents actually evacuated out to Kent, to the countryside outside London, away from the bombing. And um, so, of course, the children went with them and they were actually given a lot of freedom um, when they were living in the country. And I think her parents were distracted. And in Mary's autobiography, Quant by Quant, she talks a lot about how they were rebelling a lot. They were kind of making havoc with the villagers they were living with and being quite quite naughty and just having fun and... (laughs) I think that's a kind of unexpected side to the story, I guess, about growing up in the war, that they were given this freedom. And I I think it's quite interesting that so many people who grew up in that generation kind of went on to have amazing lives and, you know, change things. Their lives were changing for women. And and Mary, for me, kind of embodied a lot of that social change. Right. And it was as a young woman that Mary began to sew, right? And that's what led her to fashion design. I think it was partly that. Yeah, I mean, she talks in her book about how she cut up a bedspread, I think, to make a dress. That oh, was, right. <laughs> um, you know, that was, she wasn't, her parents didn't appreciate that at all. But yes, it, sewing was a kind of skill that most children were taught. I mean, most women were taught as children anyway. Um, and she talks also about how she hated being made to wear hand-me-down clothes and she had cousin who wore really fussy clothes that she had to wear but she always had this really strong clear idea that she wanted to look different she wanted to look kind of what we would call minimalism now and she talked about this inspirational child she knew who had tap dancing lessons and she just wanted to look like her with a kind of straight fringe with a black tap dancing skirt black tights and shiny kind of Mary Jane style shoes and I think that's it's kind of clear to see that that really played out in her later fashion career and this kind of desire for simplicity so that meant that yes she said she always wanted to work in fashion design but of course her parents didn't approve at all so there was a kind of compromise that she was actually sent to or she chose to go to art school to Goldsmiths College and she trained to be an art teacher there although I'm not sure she actually finished the course because she kind of met so many interesting people there including her future husband who is Alexander Plunkett Green and he was this from the really interesting kind of aristocratic bohemian family and he was a leader in style himself and I think when the two of them met it, there was a kind of chemical reaction in terms of style and and they kind of fueled each other to have this really fun lifestyle kind of going out spending money on food and living in poverty otherwise in but in the streets of Chelsea because Alexander's 
grandmother, I think, was um, living. And they, there were lots of pubs there where everyone mixed together. And it was a really interesting, arty and a kind of mixed place to live. And I think that was the kind of perfect place to launch the fashion revolution that happened in the 60s later on. Right. And I just want to read a small excerpt from Mary's autobiography because she talks about, she remembers when she first saw Alexander and what he wore. And she writes that he wore his mother's pajama tops, his shirts, his trousers also came out of his mother's wardrobe. There was always a wide gap of white flesh between the tops of the Chelsea boots he wore and the end of the trouser leg. And I found out later he did most of his growing between 15 and 16 when he suddenly shot up about six inches. But as Jenny mentioned, dress listeners, Mary's autobiography is wonderful, and it's actually a really quick read because it's so fun. So this exhibition is about Mary Quant's contributions to the 1960s fashion revolution, a period during which fashion was completely redefined at the hands of a new generation of young designers. And it was an era when these old standards of fashion were really shattered in the face of this exciting young brand of modernity. But before we delve into that, I would like to talk briefly about what came before. What was the 1950s standard in fashion that Mary and her contemporaries would rebel against? Yes. So really, it's summed up by the idea of French haute couture. So designers like Dior, like Pacan, these kind of fairly well-known brands who defined what style meant. And it, because of the uh, kind of new look that happened in the 40s, it was very much about having tight waists, almost like a traditional Victorian image of femininity with full skirts, high heels, and very grown up. So you would have to be really quite wealthy and quite mature very often to be able to afford these kinds of leading styles. Um, this was a totally foreign idea of sophistication to Mary Quant. Um, I guess there was also Hollywood. These, there were role models like Grace Kelly and Audrey Hepburn and these films. And to me, also, there's the idea in France about beatnik culture and music and poetry that people like Mary in the 50s were, were interested in. And kind of those came together to build up into this alternative style, which became about youth fashion and, and street style as well. But yeah, very much kind of opposite to this grown-up kind of really formal grandeur that fashion had always been about until the 1960s, I guess. And young women were really, and Mary talks about this a lot, dressing like their mothers, dressing in this Dior's, you know, the new look that really defined that uh, post-World War II era. Clothing that was conservative, respectable, socially acceptable, but not necessarily fun. <laughs> so Mary and her future husband, Alexander Plunkett Green, would open their bizarre clothing boutique in 1955. And they did this along with their business partner and friend, Archie McNair. But they really had no idea what they were doing, right? I mean, in these early years. So it was kind of this trial and error period that Mary really recalls with such charm in her memoir. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's what makes it such a great story to follow. I mean, it does seem like they had their lucky break that the three of them would, they'd spotted this potential in the King's Road. Like Archie had this coffee bar called The Fantasy, which was like a magnet for all the interesting artists and actors and creative people that lived around there. And um, so down the road, a corner shop came up and I think Alexander had inherited some money too. And the three of them went into business. And immediately they kind of upset the neighbours by tearing down the kind of traditional shop front and putting in new sheet glass windows. They kind of had to make amends with the kind of historical um, rules about what you could do with buildings at that point. That's one example of the way they didn't really understand what they were doing. They also, in terms of stocking the shop, like Mary didn't intend to be a designer. 
he uh, went around to other wholesalers in London and stocked hats and um, like accessories. She calls it a weir bays, like a fish soup of different ideas and different little accessories, like black stockings. You couldn't really get tights then. Um, these plastic collars she talks about selling literally in thousands, like a Peter Pan collar that you could add to an outfit that you had already. So they didn't seem to have much of a business plan. And, you know, they kept the cash in the in a drawer. They didn't ever go to the bank. I think paying invoices and things was incredibly haphazard. And perhaps the most bizarre thing is that the fact that when Mary did start to make clothes for to fill the shop rails, which were kind of being emptied out so quickly, she actually bought retail price fabrics from Harrods, the big department store down the road. Um, she didn't know that you could get fabric much cheaper. And, you know, it just seems so amateur and, you know, ridiculous to us now. But I think underneath all of that kind of chaos, they saw that they really had a good idea and that there was really strong demand for Mary's designs. And actually, you already see in magazines, even in 1955, they came to the attention of Harper's Bazaar magazine, who promoted her a little bit. And then gradually, you get this idea of Mary's style being something that was really special and she gets more attention. And um, so they had to get organised. And she tells that story really well in, in, in the book. And we tried to show that in the exhibition, how... The garments, at first they weren't even labelled with Mary's name or Bazaar's name. Um, but yeah, they got their act together in, over the next few years. And actually by 1958, they'd opened their second shop, a much bigger shop, just directly opposite Harrods, which was quite a, a kind of audacious thing to do, really. Um, but it really demonstrated that they were ready to take on the big names in fashion. And um, I think it went from strength to strength at that stage. And Mary says in her memoir, I'd always wanted the young to have fashion of their own, absolutely 20th century fashion, but I knew nothing about the fashion business. Um, obviously, they learned more and more as the 50s progressed uh, and started to do incredibly well. And it was at Bazaar that Mary launched her fashion revolution, albeit perhaps unintentionally at first. And as you mentioned, she began to produce her own designs. So I'm hoping you can tell us more about what made Bazaar and Mary's brand of fashion so new and exciting in these formative years, but also as the 1960s began to develop? Yeah, um, I think it was very new and exciting because she was really having fun and satirizing fashion as it existed. And she was looking back to the past, which is surprising in some ways, but she was looking back to an era, for instance, the 1920s. You see a lot of her really simple dresses have dropped waists, sometimes a little bit like children's dresses were still made. Um, and she's almost like subverting the stereotypes. So instead of looking like your mother, as we've talked about already, you might might look like a little girl or you might look like a man. I mean, sometimes she did the amazing um, dresses in pinstripe fabric, like really boxy shapes, like pinafore dresses, um, but in very formal tailoring fabrics. So playing with these conventions. And I think it was this kind of satire that she had around her in London anyway. So on in theatre and radio and TV shows were kind of all deliberately kind of mocking traditions and these kind of Victorian um, institutions like, I don't know, like like the colonies. You know, the, the British Empire was changing. You know, we our whole national role was changing. And I think her brand of ideas were deliberately provocative. I think people really wanted to kind of kick against things and change. And I think her fashion really demonstrated this kind of urge that young people had. And she writes she wanted to entertain people as well as sell to them. Can you tell us a little bit about her shocking and hilarious kind of window displays that they did that they had so much fun with? 
So this was a great thing that they did. Every Saturday night, they were told they couldn't open late. They were, to start with, they used to open late into the night, but there was a law they were breaking. So instead, they used to kind of crack open a bottle of wine and, and get things together to put window displays together. And sometimes they would do things like a load of goldfish bowls with live goldfish swimming around in them and, and a dress. Or there was one that was really surreal with a kind of real lobster being led along by um, a mannequin. The lobster was dead, of course, and they'd kind of cleaned the shell and everything. But I think even so, it did really begin to smell. <laughs> so that didn't last very long. And they would kind of phone up their friends in the middle of the night. And I think there was a Christmas window they were working on when they want, wanted to do a partridge in a pear tree. So they were phoning up friends like Terence and Shirley Conran to ask if they had a stuffed stuffed partridge, you know, things like that. Um, you know, they clearly really enjoyed that side. And it was a deliberate tactic, I guess, to get attention because I think they felt they, they had to do something to um, to really launch the brand and to sort of get news, get into the newspapers. And I think that's another side of the story that they were very good at marketing and talking to journalists, fashion journalists, and, and gradually they just became a household name, partly through being brilliant at getting headlines and Kind of shock tactics, I guess. And can you talk a little bit about her fashion shows? Because what she was doing had really not been done before. Yeah, fashion shows before were deliberately very static and still and elegant. And it was all about very formal, sort of haughty models, especially in London, I guess, um, like walking along in couture um, catwalk shows such as Norman Hartnell or Hardy Amy's. And these are people who designed for the Queen, of course. And they would be all about letting the fashion journalists and the buyers see clothes from all angles and to have the time to, to sketch them. But I guess photography was coming in as well, and that might have been behind it too, because the fashion shows that Mary did were set to really fast jazz music. They were they would be really quick paced. So you'd get maybe six models sort of changing six times. And apparently they could show 40 outfits in 15 minutes. I have no idea if that was technically possible at all. But even with a bit of exaggeration, I think it was a totally new approach. And they would do these fashion shows in their own shop, so often in the bazaar, which is opposite uh, Harris. It was all really arranged around this um, mezzanine level and a, a wonderful sort of central stairway that, that the models could kind of dance down. And I think it was a lot of fun. And I think that was what helped to get attention from the, the fashion journalists and even eventually in Paris as well you know they showed in Paris in 1963 at the Hotel de Crillon which was you know a kind of bastion of tradition and and yet Mary took over her collection which included PVC um, tunics and hats and um, these kind of Sherlock Holmes style coats and things and I think to show these in Paris was really audacious and that's literally what was said about her at the time but I think they really rated her you know, the novelty of her approach in, in Paris. So I think all these risks that she was taking kind of paid off um, and helped to kind of build up this, this brand, which came to represent British style and it kind of the, the eccentricity of Britain. Right. And, you know, she really had this mission, like you said, to make fashion, you know, to really democratize fashion and make it affordable. Because I know she had her main Mary Quant line, which was a little more expensive, but then she also just, they branched out into all these different, um, you know, wholesale, ready to wear 
um, lines that were launched in America. I know, right, she did a collaboration with J.C. Penney. Exactly. So that's such an important part of the story. So they visited America in 1960. I think they just took out a small collection, she and Alexander, and they ended up getting a, a selection stocked in New York stores like Lord and Taylor. And I think already then her style kind of captured the attention of magazines like Life magazine, who began to report about her and her collections. But also she learned very much from the American way of doing things in the Garment Quarter in New York. I think she saw how quick everything could be done and how businesslike everyone was there. And I think she wanted to bring some of that um, efficiency back to the UK. And so that helped her to launch her own kind of lower price label, which was called Mary Quant's Ginger Group. So she collaborated with a manufacturer in the UK. They, again, they marketed it in a really clever way. So it was supposed to be a kind of capsule collection that you could break down into components. So if you couldn't afford a whole dress, maybe you could afford a top one week and then maybe a skirt the next. And it was significantly less expensive than the main clothes she had been doing before. And I think that was how she kind of managed to really break down the perceptions about fashion being just for an exclusive older group of people and especially when she started to do tights and um, that started in 1963 the same year and um, she marketed these in younger magazines such as Petticoat in the UK and appealing to the student market and then really once the tights thing had happened her name and her logo which became the Daisy logo it was licensed for other products such as shoes and Paper patterns, of course, that was a really big step forward, working with the American company, Butterick. Right. And I think I read something in the catalog, exhibition catalog, that she was designing something like 500 designs a year at one point. It was super busy. Yeah, exactly. I think that was 1965. So by the mid-1960s, Mary Quant, the brand and woman, had become an international sensation. Mary received an OBE, or Order of the British Empire, in 1966, and this was for her contributions to exporting British fashion to the world. And it was that same year at the age of 36 that she had written her memoir, Quant by Quant. So, you know, she's just 36 years old and she's already writing her memoirs. So the company's meteoric success was in no small part due to the business acumen of Archie McNair, the flair for publicity possessed by Alexander Plunkett Green and Mary's own star power, as well as this collective mission to democratize fashion. And Quant really was the embodiment of her brand and really the era. She herself would become a fashion icon. Her hair was bobbed by none other than Vidal Sassoon in 1960. And that was before her trip to New York that you just mentioned. And to me, I really see that as a symbolic kickoff of what would become this incredibly exciting progressive decade with herself as one of its driving forces. And we will learn more about Mary Quant after a brief sponsor break. Mary has often been credited as the inventor of the miniskirt, and this is an accolade also given to or taken by, in some cases, fellow British designer John Bates, as well as the French haute couturier Ange Courrèges. But Mary has always given the credit of the miniskirt to the young women on the street that inspired her. Can we talk about Mary's unique design aesthetic and its progression? So how her early designs in the 50s progressed to become some of the the most important defining features of the 1960s youth quake revolution. I think you're right that this step she took in 1960 to have her hair cut short kind of showed how 
the how things were going to change. And already in 1960, she was wearing her skirts above the knee. But it actually took quite a long time for the mini skirt really to evolve. And I we tried to do this in the exhibition to show how actually the skirts gradually moved up by maybe an inch a year until about 1966, when the real, really short skirts appeared. And of course, not everyone was wearing them. This was quite a small, exclusive kind of circle of people in London. Um, although we do show how people outside London were wearing these, and we've incorporated some people's clothes that they've donated recently to the show. So I guess the miniskirt myth, as you could see it, is... Um, you know, it didn't dominate the decade in some ways. It was just a gradual thing. And Mary also talked about how, as you say, that it was people on the street that were doing it anyway. And I think it was also school children, like even today. Schoolgirls here in the UK have uniforms and they turn the waistbands over so that they, <laughs> they show more leg. And I just think it was what was happening. But she managed to kind of capture that energy. And of course, because she was really mastering this idea of, of mass production and bringing designer clothes to many, many more people. But also because she was wearing her own look, she became so much associated with the miniskirts. And, and I think that's why she has been credited as the inventor of, of the miniskirt. Um, and perhaps rightly, because, you know, she could wear it and show people the whole attitude, whereas obviously Courage and even John Bates, you know, they really couldn't embody the brand in the way that Mary could. So I guess that is the key element of the youth quote revolution. But I guess also people forget that trousers were a thing that you couldn't really wear to, to even to work or to restaurants, certainly in, in the UK. Um, it was really fat frowned upon unless you were like a student wearing jeans. You know, there were certain levels and rules that um, people had to adhere, adhere to and we've got this great pair of trousers from 1962 which again are like taking menswear ideas and using a formal tweed to make this really fun kind of low-cut sexy pair of trousers or pants in the US um, which Mary herself wore and I think that's something that's just as important as the mini skirts in creating this idea of a revolution and really breaking down the barriers of what was right and what was proper and people begin beginning to express themselves in a in a much more personal way. Yeah and can you give any credence to this idea you often hear about the birth control pill was introduced at this period so it really allowed women this newfound freedom that they never had before. I'm reading Pat Cleveland's or I just read Pat Cleveland's memoir and she talks about this exact moment when birth control came out and her skirts got shorter because she felt free and comfortable suddenly expressing herself in this way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to say it and pin it down to one thing, such as the birth control pill, because in in fact, it was actually only available to married women for a start. And it took a while before it became this widely available thing. I think also it was it's surprising to think that feminism hadn't really happened. You know, people didn't really use the word feminism at all. This was all too early. You know, that happened later in the 70s. But I think what you can see is that there is evidence of attitudes to, to sexual, like sexual attitudes were just changing. There was a, a liberation that was starting to break down these really strict rules of behavior. Things like homosexuality was legalized. And I guess against all that, there is also this changing attitudes towards women and working and women getting getting education so new universities were opening certainly in the UK and um, more women were going to university because of grammar schools so there was freedom in education for us we had the national health service and I think this kind of idea of equality and democracy really 
was going on in the background at the same time. And I, I think it's it's that much broader kind of background of a kind of tapestry of change rather than any one particular thing um, that you could pinpoint it onto. Right. And Mary actually said that her company's success was part of the zeitgeist of this period. So, you know, all of these things are happening at once. So she's essentially says she was riding the waves of what was already happening among the British youth who really were in need of this drastic change, or some of them were demanding it, rather. And Mary, of course, is perhaps the most famous British fashion designer from this period, but she was one of many young designers who really helped to shape this youthquake fashion revolution. And can we talk about what was so revolutionary collectively about this period that really changed fashion forever? I think... Exactly. As you said, that she kind of led the the kind of wave of change that was happening anyway. I think ready to wear was already, you know, it was fine. It was acceptable even for quite wealthy people to wear good quality ready to wear clothing. But I think the big change that came through was like the art schools, certainly in London and the UK, creating this wonderful education that might mean you still learned from things in from the catwalk shows in France and the couture shows, but they would be educated in the whole um, industry. So they would work in factories and they'd be given this really good grounding in the fashion industry. So I think that fed into this kind of Mary breaking down the wall and then a a flood of other people came in. And I guess people also had more time and they had more money. So shopping became more of a kind of leisure activity. It wasn't all about just the essentials and it became something that was fun. And and I guess it's the start of the whole fast fashion idea that um, we know today. And I guess it really turned around the whole idea of fashion starting from a small, exclusive kind of group of people in, in France to making it much more about younger people with energy and doing what they wanted to do and you know, you can certainly use the word revolution, you know, it's, it's it's absolutely right. So it's great that we can actually sort of put Mary's place as the leader of this youth quake with the exhibition in this book, which is so overdue as well. Right. And I mean, I think it's just important to emphasize too that, you know, for so many years, the French really had set the pace in fashion. And it was done in this really exclusive you know, really high and expensive way. And then, you know, their designs would kind of trickle down and be copied at all price points and, um, you know, worn by members across society. But when the youthquake happened in the 60s, you have these young people, you know, young women on the streets setting the fashion. You have the high fashion designers in France looking at these these young women and saying and being influenced. Um, and so this idea of youth really pervades all of fashion um, and changes uh, not only how fashion is made, but who's consuming it, where they're consuming it. And it's just such this wonderful, exciting period. You also have this period where this is like the peacock revolution that we talk about when you have men experimenting with fashion and colorful, expressive ways, boutique culture. And then I'm hoping we can talk a little bit too about this new generation of young models like Twiggy and Jean Shrimpton, Marissa Berenson. Yeah, I mean, the the models were crucial. And I think Mary was really careful to work with models who really understood what she wanted. And, and I guess she was a model herself in many ways as well and, you know, photographed so brilliantly. But yeah, they, they kind of presented something totally different. And it was all about action and movement, you know, the fashion imagery you see it's like literally, you know, like lying on the ground, it's jumping, it's really active and really in motion. So this formality has completely gone. I guess the photographers were all that were coming out were all younger as well. They all knew each other. 
and I guess the whole music scene, we you really can't ignore that either, that um, British bands coming in, kind of taking what they had, um, you know, like the jazz and the blues from the, the, from the States and kind of making that this new blend of sound that kind of went with the fashion as well and that people were, were going off in all these different directions, I guess. Yeah, and Mary actually writes, um, I think the V&A republished her memoir a couple years ago and she did an entry to it, an introduction, and she wrote that the feeling of verve and zest was everywhere. It drove the ideas, the excitement, the compulsion to do more, reach out and touch all those whose lives embrace the new liberation to demonstrate the differences between post-war Britain and the frenzied period that the 60s became. The explosion of energy generating and reflecting the change of social attitudes tore through music, design, art, photography, film, architecture, theater. It was a new world and fashion was at its center. I just love that. And she also says, like most happy times, it all passed too quickly, but the future is for the young and it always will be. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that's so true. And I guess that's what we're really seeing as well, is that young people are really fascinated by these clothes. You know, even my daughters are saying that they would wear these things that you see in the glass cases, um, which you don't hear them say very often in, <laughs> in the V&A. So it's just this really timeless energy. And so many of the things that we've shown on display as well, are we, we borrowed from people who say they still wear them or their daughters still wear them. So it's like she broke down all the... Uh, all the rules so that it became much more free so so anyone could wear things you know it wasn't just about age it was just about look feeling yourself and and looking good and you know that's what fashion is all about today right and as the decade progressed this new modern aesthetic quote-unquote modern aesthetic was gradually replaced by one that looked at the past for inspiration so you have young people who in Britain who are shopping secondhand and vintage, and you also have in America the hippie counterculture that's one of anti-fashion and anti-consumerism. And so I'm curious how Mary adapted to these changes and how her brand continued after the 1960s. I actually was not aware until I read the catalog just how extensive her reach was and for how many years her company operated. She did not retire from her company until 2000. Yeah, that's right. So her brand continued well after the 60s. And I guess I've always seen her as such a minimalist sort of style, you know, that's, that is her style. And I know she found it quite difficult to kind of look back to like the hippie thing and kind of wearing vintage clothes. She always did this thing of, of incorporating historic elements in a quite a, in quite a streamlined way. And we tried to show that in the show, which and we end it in 1975, when I feel like other people were changing the direction of fashion. And of course, we had punk and Vivian Westwood's shop opened in 1975. So it was going in a different direction. But by that time, Mary's brand was doing really well on a global scale, but particularly in Japan, which is quite interesting, where I think her brand just really connected with, with the aesthetic there. And um, so it focused mu very much on this market in Japan, still making makeup, and she still licensed all sorts of things. So homewares, like you could buy kettles in the kitchen, duvet covers, carpets, stationery. And I guess that that's how the brand evolved through the 70s and the 80s, but very much with this focus in Japan. And in fact, the brand still operates from Japan in that way. And, and Mary absolutely um, remained a consultant to the business until she retired in 2000. And she also has, I loved the Daisy doll and her rebellious younger sister, Havoc. I did not know about that doll until the catalog. <laughs> That's totally the reason why I 
got into fashion, I think, at the age of about five. I just loved my Daisy doll. And she had such a glamorous wardrobe. And you could buy it with your pocket money. You could do all the sticker doll books with, you know, the great interiors that you could imagine you might have one day. So, yeah, she really tapped into this kind of an aspirational desire for fashion and style. And I think I think a lot of people will remember that. And that's why her name is sort of remained in circulation today. And it's been great because we've been able to tell the full story this time. Yeah, absolutely wonderful. And this exhibition is particularly special for a number of reasons. And we are going to hear all about that after a brief sponsor break. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives. But what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this (laughs) hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Welcome back. So, Jenny, I'm hoping you can tell us about the We Want Quant campaign and why the public's involvement was particularly important for this exhibition. I'm also hoping you can share if there's any stories that stood out to you in particular. Yes, of course. So uh, one way we wanted to make this exhibition a really big celebration about Mary Quant's timeless appeal really was to turn it back to the customers who bought her clothes and to get them to send us not only garments that we particularly wanted to find but also images of them wearing their quant clothes and a little quote like a tweet about why why their clothes were special why they kept them and what Mary Quant meant to them and of course we had a fabulous response which is I guess a bit overwhelming but in the end we ended up with 
about 30% of the clothes in the in the exhibition were donated in this way or lent and throughout the show we've got pictures of people wearing their clothes and it's been great because we can kind of take the focus away from the kind of artificial unattainable idea of couture and and even Mary Quant's own fashion images really and just bring back that context of people's homes and gardens and people in their with their cards and every picture tells a story I guess but everyone tells us the same thing really that they kept these things because these clothes represent such an important time in their lives when they're just like leaving home starting university or art school and kind of working out who they want to be and we got so many stories literally from around the world Australia San Francisco people told us even just bits of makeup that they wanted to contribute but I don't know one of there's so many stories but one of them was from a lady who made a dress for her 21st birthday from a Mary Quant pattern and she'd kept it all all that time and it's it's absolutely stunning it's like a Miss Muffet design every dress had a title so that's a good one but then there's also a PVC Mac Um, she did these fabulous raincoats with zips and um, in bright bright glossy colors and in fact one of the stories that really stands out is the fact that this coat traveled with its wearer to South America and even to the Falkland Islands <laughs> the wearer was married to a scientist who was doing research out there and in fact this coat went everywhere and even um it's kind of once it fell to bits the owner even kept the zip of the coat even the coat, when the coat <laughs> no longer existed and I just loved that fact that it's kind of represented something so special to her and there were many stories like that but also that it just showed the whole range of people that the brand appealed to so it started off being quite exclusive circles like even people who would have gone to debutante balls in the late 50s um these special party dresses that you could get from bazaar and one lady told us how going to bazaar was like a rite of passage sort of you couldn't be presented at court to the queen anymore but in the new world order you could go to bazaar and be bought a special dress by your mother and i guess it's that whole feeling of of having something that maybe expresses yourself was disseminated to many many more people through the Mary Quant brand so there's so many stories like that and then we also interviewed people for the show and you can see them talking about their connection with Mary Quant whether it was they sold makeup on a makeup counter or they wrote about Mary's clothes for a magazine and um, even just one customer who just told us about how she bought the clothes having seen Mary do a shop display and she wanted the a blouse as soon as it was put in the, in the window display she wanted to buy it and I think that was a bit upsetting to the shop assistants at the time but um it's these really really personal connections that people had with these clothes and you know 60 years later they generously gave them to the museum and it just meant that we could really enrich the exhibition and personalize it and the people are talking about their own clothes with each other you know people you've never met before they're all chatting about their Mary Gaunt clothes in the in the exhibition so I think that really makes the exhibition stand out as something that people can engage with yeah, and any time you can really go to an exhibition and relate to what you're seeing, I just think that makes it so much more special. I know FIT just did an exhibition called Unraveled that similarly emphasized, you know, real people and worn garments and the experience of wearing those garments that more people can relate to. Um, so I think that's really, really cool. And I love that that's woven into into your exhibition. Yeah, I mean, it really does It help to kind of convey the message that the brand was about Mary but it was also about how people identified with with it and it was very authentic and I guess that kind of connects with how fashion works today with having 
you know, brand ambassadors and Instagram fashion, you know, you want to see these clothes in real life. And like, it kind of makes me think about what fashion means to people and why do people want to come to exhibitions about fashion anyway as well. So it kind of goes beyond just Mary Quant's career. It's it's much broader than that. Yeah. April and I've always talked about this, that, you know, people really respond to fashion exhibitions and clothing exhibitions because we all wear clothing, we all get dressed and there's just something very relatable and personable about that material culture that, you know, might not exist in other areas. So um, very, very cool. And this exhibition is also really special because it features pieces from Dame Mary Quant's personal archive. And I would love if you could talk a little bit about what it was like working with a woman who is also somewhat of a living legend, although I know Mary would shy away from that distinction, but it's so cool that uh, she worked with you guys. I know it was absolutely amazing. And I mean, I met Mary a couple of times and each time it was just like meeting someone who was very humble and normal and didn't have really any sense of their own importance at all. Um, So we're just delighted that she actually gave us boxes and boxes of photographs and marketing materials that um, we could choose from to show in the exhibition. She was incredibly generous. Um, And we also worked very closely with her son. And so she was working through him in a way and she would, you know, see the ideas we were having. And we know that she was absolutely thrilled, especially with this idea of how people from the public have responded with their own clothes and their own stories. And it kind of underlines how she is quite a shy person and she needs to be celebrated and and people need to be reminded of who she was and how she influenced fashion today. And it's great to be able to kind of interest the younger generation in these things that actually a lot of them are still wearing. I mean, the mini skirt is never going to go away. So I think it's just been a great time to do it. So you talked a little bit about it, but I would like in closing just to talk about what Mary Quant's legacy is today. I mean, she's there in every element of fashion today. I think, you know, she was so good at retailing and creating these kind of fun experiences in terms of branding. Had this really fierce, strong print that she used on absolutely everything. And so her packaging was great. And then, of course, the Daisy logo, I think it was something that she did that really saw ahead to like how we we operate today with brands kind of almost dominating our lives. But the Daisy logo meant something to, it's almost like a badge or a flag. So representing energy and fun and taking risks. And I think it was that approach and the way that she used fashion to almost advertise the fact that that things were changing and that women weren't going to kind of be in those old role models and and they wanted a style for themselves. And she provided it for them. Um, yeah, I guess it comes down to a kind of attitude at the end of the day and the fact that fashion is something that's important, but it's also fun. And I think we owe a lot to her really for the way fashion has changed and and how it's something we can all enjoy today. Jenny, thank you so much for being here today and for sharing Mary Quant's legacy and life with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you for asking. Jenny, thank you for being here. This sounds like a fantastic exhibition cast and listeners have until February of 2020 to check it out. And if you can't make it, there's an accompanying exhibition catalog chock full of wonderful information and photographs, and it even gives you a guide to help you date your Mary Quants. Also coming in 2020, the Just Fashion History Mystery Tour of Paris, and we only have a few spots left. So don't miss your opportunity to join us in the Fashion Epicenter for a tour you won't get anywhere else. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider the legacy of Mary Quant in your wardrobe next time you get dressed.
Remember to tune in this Thursday for the latest edition of Fashion History Mystery, where we address questions from you, our listeners, and we love hearing from you. So if you would like to email us, please do so at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And of course, you can always direct message us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode at dress underscore podcast is also our Twitter handle. And you can follow us on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore. For additional readings for each week's episode, check out our show notes at dressedpodcast.com. And don't forget about our merch store at tpublic.com forward slash dressed. That's T-E-E public.com forward slash dressed. And as always, special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low-net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands, and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.